Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Folk singer, front porch philosopher, producer, and host of the Woodsongs Old Time Radio Hour, and member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, Michael Jonathan makes a return visit to Think Humanities. It was about this time last year when we asked Michael to talk uh, with us about his thoughts and reflections on where we're going in this world and how music and art and good old-fashioned conversation can heal a lot of wounds and woes. And we've asked him to do much the same this year, if he doesn't mind. Michael, welcome back. Bill, it's a very nice uh, privilege to be uh, coming back and to see you again. And thank you very much for having me. Well, you're our um, final act for uh, 2019. Uh. (laughs) And uh, we did this last year, and I thought it worked so well. And you're so kind to uh, provide the time uh, to come in for a recording of this. And you'll... uh, You'll lead us out of uh, 19 and into a new year. Can you believe that we're already hitting 2020? I mean, it seems like just yesterday Y2K was a problem. <laughs> Boy, do I remember that well. I, it's like, yeah. yeah, that's 20 years ago. Yeah. So, so a, lot, a lot has happened, yeah. And not only 20 years uh, in two decades, but just this decade mm-hmm. and how quickly it has sped by. Well, you know, 20 years ago, uh, nobody knew what Facebook was. Nobody knew what Google was. A tweet was something that a bird did. You know, uh, uh, the world has really changed. It's gotten more visibly angry. And I think the, uh, there is a hunger for what I refer to as the front porch spirit. Uh, the Internet has created a generation of incredibly lonely people under the illusion that they have friends. They have friends that they don't see, meet, talk to. There's no organic interaction. and People have forgotten how to write. The, uh, the advent of texting and, and abbreviations. You know, they don't know how to express themselves. You know, we were thinking... Our emotions are now condensed to 140 characters, and and uh, that has made us a, a generation of strangers, and where that's why I think the uh, Kentucky Humanities Council is so important, because you're telling a story that made a region wonderful. Hmm. You're telling a story that made a people great and and the most romantic, misunderstood part of America, you know, the foothills of Appalachia and and what happened in Western Kentucky and and the music and the art that comes with it. I mean, Kentucky is one of the greatest birthing grounds of art in the nation. And it takes a Kentucky Humanities Council to keep that story alive. Well, that is so well said. I almost want to conclude right there and just say thank you very much, and we'll be back next year. <laughs> but um, it's, it's true. It's true. You know? Well, I hope there is always a place for that uh, in Kentucky. Uh, there are, gosh, we could go back and and look at each of uh, your examples and, and where we are, and we'll do some of that mm-hmm. and um, talk about that. But for... Um, Folks who might be joining us for the first time, just give us a, a, a brief uh, bio of, uh, of Michael Jonathan and, and how you came to be a Kentuckian from New York. Yes, I'm a transplanted New Yorker. Please don't hold that against me. Um, I uh, grew up uh, upstate New York. I had a uh, very interesting neighbor on the side of a mountain in Beacon, New York, along 
a highway called 9D, which ran right across the right along the Hudson River. And uh, he was a pleasant old fella, uh, claimed to be a musician, but he played the banjo. And to us young rock and roll kids, we just didn't quite get that because if you can't plug it in, it's not a real instrument, as you know. And uh, that neighbor turned out to be a, a singer-songwriter named Pete Seeger. And he had uh, a group called the Weavers, and he wrote great songs like, uh, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And To Everything Turn, Turn, Turn. And, and I, I didn't realize that till I played a Roger McGuinn and the Birds record one day, and I noticed that it was written by my neighbor. And uh, that was a very inspiring thing. And I told him, you know, I called him up and, and I said, you know, Pete, I, I just realized you're Pete Seeger, and, um, which he thought was funny, you know. And I said, you know, I really want to be a folk singer. What do I do? This is interesting to me. Because I grew up in a very uh, uh, broken family, severely alcoholic mother, a stepfather who was very alienated. Um, I was not part of any community. I didn't even know uh, that he was not my dad till I was 12 years old. My, my father died five days before I was born. And so I didn't have a tradition, I didn't have a history, and folk music provided me with the, the feeling of tradition and history that I didn't have personally. I didn't know my background, I didn't know my name, I didn't know my family, I didn't have the family that I thought I had. And uh, he said, go to Appalachia. He said, if you really want to learn folk music, don't go to college, don't go to school, mm -hmm. go to the mountains. And so I landed in a little hamlet in eastern Kentucky, Mousy, Kentucky. Um, and I went up and down the hollers for two and a half years, knocking on doors, having all these hundreds of front porch hoot nannies, and people would teach me great. I was just a, a, a harmless, long-haired, post-retro, hippie, banjo-toting kid. Uh, they took mercy on me. They didn't view me as an outsider. They didn't view me as someone who's coming there to change anything. They just saw me as a, a young kid that really wanted to enjoy their culture and their music. And so they were very, very helpful. Ray Sloan and Heinemann and the McLean Family Band and, and folks like that were extremely kind and, and helpful. And that's how I started my folk music career. So you're using... Uh and still uh, do uh, if there is a label that can be uh, stamped on Michael Jonathan folk singer. You, you still you Proudly. still are very proud of that. And Proudly. Yet um, you you talked about um, the Birds, uh, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. That was that era. I just mm -hmm. saw uh, Carol King's a beautiful uh, musical, yes. uh, and that music was late '60s '70s. Uh, now, before all of that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, folk music was, uh, and Pete Seeger, and uh, so many others. Uh, I just read that Judy Collins uh, is now 80 years old. Yeah. Uh, Joan Baez uh, is still singing. Those are all um, people that Pete Seeger worked with, and, and many before that. So is folk singing still viable in America and in Kentucky today? It is probably one of the most important music genres there is. And here's why. It is the mother that gave birth to rock. It gave birth to country. Folk music gave birth to the blues. Bill Monroe was playing folk music 
mountain folk music till he added a percussive mandolin to it and turned it into bluegrass. Mm. Folk music is the mother of every music genre that there is. It in, it in, encapsulates classical and opera. The illusion of folk music today is the uh, little whiny songwriter on a stool in a church basement moaning on about social causes and issues people don't care about. Folk music is actually an an exciting, passionate, brilliant, all-encompassing celebration of the human heart. It's the music of America's front porch. It's the language of rural America. And more than ever, Appalachia and Kentucky is the garden that that music comes from. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll include West Virginia and North Carolina in that, that region as well. And so it is, it is probably one of the most brilliant exclamation points in the canon of America's music. When you had finished, uh, not that you ever really truly finished uh, knocking on doors and playing on front porches in Appalachia, um, what what is the first way that you tried to uh, expand not only what you were doing with folk music, but to bring the music that you had studied and learned to a, a wider audience? Well, I started singing about the earth and the environment in schools. That's how I started. And I ended up performing about 4,000 concerts in five years in 14 states. I performed to well over 3.5 million people. I was doing two and three concerts a day. I was one busy dude. Yeah. <laughs> I was just traveling with my guitar and banjo. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Governor Martha Lane Collins at the time uh, helicoptered into one of my concerts. Huh. And uh, she introduced me as the most famous unknown person she ever met. Because <laughs> I was performing all these people. Yeah. Billboard magazine had these big write-ups and stuff. And But I was not interested in a commercial career. Uh, there is a difference between pursuing money and pursuing the heart. And what most artists forget, what most music industry people forget is that love is the greatest transaction of the arts. Love is the ultimate business plan of any arts group, any arts organization. And any nonprofit, whether it's ballet or classical or opera or groups and bands, whenever they focus on the music, on the money, they destroy the art. And I'll Mm -hmm. give you a really good example. Music Row in Nashville has been eviscerated. Music Row in Nashville, the most legendary three music blocks in America, the most legendary neighborhood in the world that created country music, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, the Grand Ole Opry, Dolly Parton, the three blocks is gone. It's turned into condos, office buildings, and law offices. The record labels are gone. The, The studios are gone. They focused on the money and destroyed it. And... What I saw early on was that focusing on the heart, focusing on the love, would provide me a career, and I did not need to focus on the commercialism. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want hits, I didn't want big record deals, I didn't want any of that. So how did you accomplish that, or how are you accomplishing that? I work, I work hard. Um, You know, created wood songs out of nothing. 
And, and, and again, Wood Songs is? Wood Songs is a, a what's what we do on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> it has turned into a, a worldwide a Kentucky-based radio and TV broadcast. It airs on 537 radio stations from Australia to Ireland, all across the United States. It recently got picked up by WSM, the broadcast home of the Grand Ole Opry. Um, and they gave Wood Songs not a one-hour time slot, a two-hour time block, early Sunday evening, 7 and 8 o'clock. Wow. A beautiful time spot. Mm-hmm. And uh, they decided to air. This is a commercial radio station, the home of the Grand Ole Opry. They've given they've given Wood Songs more airtime than the Grand Ole mm-hmm. Opry, mm-hmm. and they decided to air the public radio version. They did not want to cut it up for commercials, which is a huge mm-hmm. um, validation of the love principle. You know, things can happen out of love, and Wood Songs happens out of love. Nobody gets paid; it's all volunteer. Even the artists that come on the show are not paid a penny. And uh, as we're sitting here, we've already d- we just celebrated our 1,000th broadcast, which in day-to-day life doesn't mean anything, but in broadcast world, that's a pretty big deal. Uh-huh. Tell me about this year, um, and tell me about some new uh, work that you've done, and uh, how hard you have been working, and how mm. proud you are of some of uh, uh, the new stuff that you're 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 doing besides doing this weekly program, just talk a little bit about this year. Sure. Well, like I said, Wood, Wood Songs is what we do on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the week, I'm on the road. Uh, I do uh, about fifty to sixty concerts a year. Um, some of them for the Kentucky Humanities Council, which I'm very proud to do. Well, you're a, a member, uh, and we're so glad of our speakers bureau and that you. Um, uh, Pack the house uh, in many places. Uh, I, we have now a board member from Paducah who is oh, yeah, at the yeah. McCracken Library, uh, uh, McCracken County Library, and uh, Bobby Wrinkle is uh, terrific. And boy, did she sing your praises! Well, about that's how very you kind of her. It was a fun night too yeah, at the library. Yeah. yeah. So when in in a speakers bureau performance uh, for someone who might. Uh, be interested in in having you come see them. Walk us through that uh, 30, 40 minute, 50 minute uh, presentation that you make. They're getting the solo performance of what I'm now doing with symphony orchestras around Mm -hmm. the country. And I call it Songs of Rural America. We just taped one for public television with the Ohio Valley Symphony. And it's gonna air nationwide on PBS stations across the country. Um, and it's just me and my guitar and banjo, but it's the songs and stories of rural America, the songs that created the personality of America's front porch. You know, uh, everything from uh, my own original songs to uh, stories about Buddy Holly, um, the, the story of, uh, of, of, of Vincent and Starry Starry Night. Um, things like that, mm-hmm. you know, that that shaped the attitude and feelings of what became the great musical pulpit of America, which is the front porch, and the the Kentucky front porch is one of the strongest images of America of itself. The Kentucky image of the log cabin and people independent spirit and making their way through uh, Appalachia and in regions with no economy and overcoming, uh, you know, people trying to take advantage of them. And that that spirit of making home your home no matter what 
is what what I present on a smaller scale mm-hmm. to to smaller audiences. Yeah. The front porch. Um, wh- how how did that occur to you? What did that morph? I from? saw it in Mousy. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it in Mousy, and it occurred to me that in all across America, they don't even build front porches on new homes anymore. That's how far away we have gotten from the sense of community. You look at a new development anywhere in America, even here in Kentucky, the great feng shui welcome of a new home is the garage door. (laughs) The thing you leave by is what's welcoming your friends and neighbors. It is so bass backwards to what it should be. (laughs) And, And my message as an artist and as a folk singer is, you know, wait a minute. We as a community are very important. We as a community have a story to tell. We as a community built something wonderful. Don't, don't let technology and loneliness take it away. Let's remind ourselves, especially since 9-11, people are trying to remind themselves, what is it that made America so wonderful once upon a time? You know, what we're seeing now is not it. This fighting, this arguing, this political and emotional divide, this, this digital two-dimensional presentation of art is not what made us great, mm-hmm. is not what made this society so attractive around the world. We have to step back and go, what was that? And part of it was the spirit of our own front porches, that community center, that loving neighborhood feel of being part of this culture. Um, you um, have done such a, a wonderful job of articulating that uh, and, and building on that. And it's, uh, I know you have a lot of people who would agree with you. Uh, one of the other ways that you do that is, of course, uh, through your music and, and uh, through your performances. Um, tell me about uh, Song Farmer and, um, and, and how, again, that came about and what you do either uh, as a solo artist or with uh, a full orchestral uh, <laughs> accompaniment. Yeah, I call it the full presentation of folk music. Um, it's a three-part answer, so let me, let me try to organize the answer for you. I created the Wood Songs broadcast. It has a huge audience. You know, the Lyric Theater literally fills up on a Monday night downtown during dinner time to hear, you know, hundreds of people line up to hear artists they don't know sing songs they've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And then it goes out on the worldwide airwaves. I mean, American Forces Radio Network, this little Lexington broadcast is airing on the radio in 177 nations on the radio, plus every single military ber- uh, base, every U.S. naval ship in the world mm-hmm. is hearing this Lexington-based radio broadcasts celebrate this front porch music. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't want people just to listen. I want my listeners to be proactive. So I started the Wood Songs Coffee House program where you can start your own hometown coffee house and bring some of these artists in for little concerts. And right now there's 96 mm-hmm. Wood Songs coffee houses around the world. The, one of the most amazing ones is in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, in Dalton, Georgia, they, they have, you know, regularly three or 400 people showing up to their mm-hmm. con- And these are concerts, mm-hmm. ticketed concerts. The artists get paid. And I was like, you know, 
the music business has really changed. Nobody dreamt five years ago, Bill, that the biggest retailer of CDs in America was going to be Cracker Barrel. Is that right? All the record store chains in America are gone. They don't put CD players in new cars anymore. There's no CD players in computers anymore. And the ability for artists to make a transaction is disappearing. The business model of the music world, venue licensing, is so archaic and so outdated that it's interfering even with artists being able to play songs in front of an audience. Venues, restaurants, cafes don't want to present live music because it's so litigious, it's so expensive to get permission and licenses from BMI and ASCAP, which are wonderful organizations, they've helped everybody, but right now that business model is wrong. It's hurting, it's not helping. Uh, the Smithsonian, uh, has invited me to come to Washington, D.C. next week to present my views about business, the music business, and mm -hmm. how wrong venue licensing is. Mm. I think it should be artist licensing. Mm -hmm. If an artist has a license, they, they are now free to play anything they want. Did you know, Bill, that you could sit on a park bench with your guitar and play This Land Is Your Land, and you are breaking federal law? No. That's how crazy it is mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So I created the Song Farmers Movement. All of these amazing musicians, amazing songwriters and artists with no place to go. What do they do with that spirit and their passion? And I, my message to them is turn your attention to the front porch. Forget money. You're not going to get paid. You're not going to go on tour. You're not going to get signed. There's no booking agent that's going to start booking you anywhere, okay? That's the truth. The truth is hard, but artists need to be told the truth. The truth is there really is no more music business anymore for you. So what do you do with that? Turn your attention to the community. Become a mentor. Become a leader. And so right now there are 70 active song farmer chapters around the country, and all they do is they'll use their public library or their home or a school or whatever and once a month they get their friends together they sit in a big circle and they play the same songs together as a group mm. it is fun mm. it's like a it's like performing a concert to other musicians and i'll give you an example little teleco plains tennessee tiny peanut town of 800 people they're regularly having 200 or more showing up to each song farmer event uh, tiny cabot arkansas started in his living room with six people they're now at the conference center at the public library with 200 or more showing up and the local banks are sending hamburger trucks and soda pop <laughs> trucks because the event yeah. is so important now yeah um, so the song farmer movement has really thrived and Berea College has become the national center of the song farmer movement and they host the national gathering every year well that's wonderful too isn't I that great that. Yeah. oh Berea yeah. College has been brilliant uh, and in the meantime in your spare time yeah besides uh, uh, five-year-old twins what else uh, oh my <laughs> goodness gracious uh, you have done uh, 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 Walden, The Ballad of Thoreau, yes. but I want to, uh, more recently, because I know a little bit about this, uh, one of our Chautauqua actors, uh, but, but Caney Creek, The Ballad of Alice Lloyd, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's a, a, 
that's a screenplay. Is it also now a motion picture? It's, we are working so hard to turn the story of Alice yeah. Lloyd into a major motion picture. And my manager is Gina Mandello, who has a motion picture background. And we are getting closer and closer and closer. I had this sucker financed in 2009. And then the economy fell apart, if you remember. People's credit cards didn't even work. Mm -hmm. So all that financing went away. And I started focusing on other things instead. And then here, the, the last couple of years, I've resurrected mm -hmm. the idea of, of the story of Alice Lloyd, one of the most amazing, brilliant women's stories centered in Kentucky, mm -hmm. where it presents the Appalachian people truthfully mm -hmm. as strong, smart, common sense. There was a reason they didn't trust outsiders. Uh, there was a reason why they did the things they did to survive in those mountains. And here you had this woman from Boston come in, this outsider. Um, she arrived in November of... Uh, of, 2000, of, of uh, 1916, November 1916, with her mother uh, to uh, uh, Heinemann, Kentucky. She's there for a couple of months. A mountain man named Abisha Johnson, 55 years old, 11 children, <laughs> sick, humpbacked, has a dream that this foreign woman would teach his children to read. He crosses two mountains barefoot in a snowstorm, collapses through Alice Lloyd's door, and begs her to come to Caney Creek and teach his children to read the Bible. And his deal with her was, he said, if you do this, I will give you my land as payment, which to a mountain man mm. is everything. Mm -hmm. He offered her everything. And today, Abisha Johnson's land is the campus property of Alice Lloyd College. Mm -hmm. She outlived the doctors that told her she had six months to live. And by World War II time, the economy after the war uh, uh, collapsed in the mountains. Uh, Alice Lloyd was trying to reach out to people all over the country. She wrote 61,000 letters with one hand because she was crippled. Mm -hmm. And one of those letters landed on the desk of a fellow named Lamont DuPont, the chairman of the DuPont Chemical Corporation, who took pity on this woman mm -hmm. with the school. Mm -hmm. So every year he would send her a little stipend, a little money mm -hmm. gift for her mm -hmm. school. Well, he passed away after World War II, and her, his accountant's going through his books and notices this yearly check sent to this woman in an obscure Kentucky. And, and he's like, oh my goodness, Lamont has sired an heir yeah. that we didn't know about. Yeah. And so the uh, widow uh, put $2,000 in a suitcase and told the accountant to go down there and pay off that biatch, was her exact words. And so he goes out there and he finds a little old crippled lady and 300 students. So he gives her the suitcase, goes back, tells the widow everything's fine. He was helping a school out, no problem. And a writer friend, William Dutton, heard him telling this story, and he wrote a, a, an article that appears in Reader's Digest magazine. By now, Alice College is getting ready to file bankruptcy. They're filing papers at the courthouse in Heinemann, Kentucky. Reader's Digest magazine comes out with a story called Stay On Stranger, that a fella in California has the mail come in 
Reader's Digest magazine is on his desk. He's in the middle of a meeting. He opens it up, sees the story, slaps the magazine on the desk, and tells his staff, this is the story I want. This is the kind of thing I want on my show. Go get this woman. Mm -hmm. And that his fella was, was the head of uh, This Is Your Life. Ralph Edwards. Ralph Edwards, that's right. So they trick Alice Lloyd to leave Caney. She hadn't left in 26 years. Yeah. She was crippled. She was sick. Never left the holler for 26 years. Three-day train trip to Hollywood. She's sitting in this strange living room with a big curtain. The curtain opens up. There's an audience. Ralph Edwards comes out. Carl D. Perkins was there. John Hall from Armco Steel was there. Um, June Buchanan was there to celebrate Alice Lloyd. And at the end of this 30-minute show, and Ralph Edwards gave me the footage of this before mm -hmm. he passed, he turns to the camera, and for the first time in network television history, he asks the audience to send her a dollar. Three days later, it was the first time anybody asked for money on network TV. And three days later, she's on the train, she's coming back. The postman in Lexington calls the sheriff in Hazard, who slams the phone down, runs into Main Street Hazard in the rain, deputizes the first 14 men he finds, <laughs> gives them all shotguns, and they surround the Hazard Post Office, waiting for three loaded trucks coming in from Lexington, full of mail, all addressed to Alice Lloyd. C. Vernon Cooper was the president of People's Bank in Hazard, and he had a photo on his wall of all the Caney students sitting at tables with mountains of letters, <laughs> and she had all those students write everybody a thank you note. Four years later, Alice Lloyd passed away, and her personal estate was worth 16 cents. Mm. She gave everything to make that tuition-free school mm -hmm. happen. And it is the one, one of the most amazing stories to come out of Appalachia, and that deserves to be a motion yeah. picture. That's a long-winded answer. No, 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 no. That's a, that's, <laughs> it's a wonderful story that um, uh, we uh, tell in our Chautauqua performance uh, and it, it's it's true, and uh, that's the thing about it. It's true. This is a re this yeah. really happened. Yeah, it really did happen. Yeah. And uh, it, it just takes a visit down to Pippapasis and to see that school still operating today to mm -hmm. sort of uh, realize and to see uh, her her little statue there and uh, to stay the in Eagle, the cabin Eagle's nest and, office yeah, where she worked. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 a it's a wonderful story. Well, listen, you um, you brought your banjer, uh, yeah. I see, and and. Uh, why not go out on uh, something that, that you've uh, obviously maybe or maybe not thought about uh, that you could leave us with uh, for this year as we go into next year? Well, you know, as we're, as we're talking, I'm, I'm reminded of, of this song through the whole conversation. And it was written by Irving Berlin. Hmm. And I, I guess... We tune because we care. Um, this is a this is a song that uh, was written uh, right around the time of the Big Depression in the 1920s, when everything looked angry and horrible, and and people were jumping out of windows, and Goodness. and 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 World War One had just happened, and millions of young uh, men and women all over the world had just died, and the, the atmosphere at the time was very much like it is now. People were stressed and angry and concerned and not sure what was going to happen. And so he wrote a song of comfort for people.
sky shining on me Nothing but blue skies do I see Bluebirds, they're singing a song Nothing but bluebirds singing all day long Never saw the sun shine so bright Never saw things looking so right Noticing the day hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly like Blue days, all of them gone Nothing but blue skies from now on Blue days, all of them gone Nothing but blue skies from now on Thank you. Thank you for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities. <laughs>